Well, it is a thrill as always to come to the Word of God. I hope you come this morning with a sense of anticipation. It is God who speaks and he does so through his word and we're grateful to be able to open it again this morning to the book of Philippians. Stories of great sacrifice abound in church history and that really is to be expected, isn't it? As people who follow in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us and for our salvation. And it is the aim of Christ's people to present their bodies a living and holy sacrifice as a demonstration of our Lord's great worth. Hudson Taylor, pioneering missionary to China, stands as one such example. Like many missionaries, particularly in his day, Hudson Taylor suffered greatly, eventually burying his first wife and four of their young children in China. When Hudson's beloved eight-year-old daughter, Gracie, lie, or lay dying of meningitis, Hudson wrote this to his friend, William Berger. Quote, I'm trying to pin a few lines by the couch on which my little darling Gracie lies dying. Dear brother, our flesh and our heart fail but God is the strength of our heart and our portion forever. It was no way vain nor unintelligent when knowing this land, speaking of China, and its people and its climate, I laid my wife and children with myself on the altar for this service. And he whom so unworthily, which which with much of weakness and failure, yet in simplicity and godly sincerity, we uh, we are and have been seeking to serve, and not without some measure of success, he has not left us now. And it was about a week later that his daughter Gracie died. And in that next month, as he was mourning her loss and he was still grieving, he wrote to his mother, quote, except when diverted from it by the duties and necessities of our position, our torn hearts will revert to the one subject. And I know now how to write to you, I know not how now to write to you of any other Our dear little Gracie, how we miss her sweet voice in the morning. One of the first sounds to greet us when we woke and through the day and at eventide. As I take the walks I used to take with her tripping at my side, the thought comes anew like a throb of agony. Is it possible that I shall never more feel the presence of that little hand? Never more hear the sweet prattle of those dear lips? Never more see the sparkle of those bright eyes? And yet she is not lost. I would not have her back again. I am thankful that she was taken 
rather than any of the others, though she was the sunshine of our lives. But she is far holier, far happier than she ever could have been here. End quote. What is it that makes a husband and a father willing to sacrifice all that is precious to him for the souls of people on the other side of the earth? It's clear, isn't it, in the snippets of those letters that Hudson Taylor saw life much like the Apostle Paul. He had one eye on earth and all that was needful for Christ in this life, and at the same time, another eye cast to heaven, fixed on Christ, anticipating the glories of heaven, wanting to be with Christ and to see his gracie again. We see that revealed this morning in our text, Philippians chapter 1, and we'll pick up again in verse 21, just to catch the flow of the context and continue down through verse 26. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me, and I do not know which to choose. I am hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. And yet to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. Convinced of this, I know I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that your proud confidence in me may abound in Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Lord, help me in this time to make these things clear. I pray by your spirit that you would teach your people, that you would feed your sheep, that you would tend your lambs, that, Lord, you would help us to to learn from these words which are here by your intent. They are your spirit's words through the Apostle Paul, recorded not so that we would just know some facts about what was going on in Paul's head, but that we might be still more conformed to the image of Christ and live in a manner worthy of our calling, that we would be pleasing to you in all things. I pray, Lord, that you would stir us up by Paul's heart to have that kind of heart as we live our lives, and particularly as we live among one another. All to your glory, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. This, as we've been speaking the last couple of weeks, clearly and briefly, concisely lays out what proves to be a dilemma in Paul's heart. He's in a tug of war internally. Now, on the one hand, he is willing to continue in this life serving Christ and ministering on the Lord's behalf. And on the other, he confesses that really while he's willing to stay, he is wanting to go. He is wanting to go to be with the Lord in the immediate presence of Christ to be with his Savior. As we've mentioned before, Philippians is a very transparent letter. Paul is close to these people and he is revealing himself as he writes to them. He's allowing really the Philippians and through them us to enter into his thinking and he's considering the potential outcome of this imprisonment that he's encountering knowing full well that 
At any moment, he might be taken before the swordsman and have his head removed. He is on trial for his faithfulness to Christ. He is on trial because he preaches the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, he says he is the Lord's prisoner. And he starts to lay things out by way of comparison. He says, on the one side, I am continuing on. I'm living in the flesh. On the other would be to depart this life, to go to be immediately with Christ. And he's in this quandary. He's torn. He's between a rock and a hard place. He's weighing, really, two potentialities that that are before him, and he doesn't know which way he prefers. He's got a definite opinion about what he wants, and at the same time, he's got another want pulling him in another direction. Paul begins in detail to lay out his reasoning. There are benefits to both, and he starts by saying to die is gain, and we saw that in the last Lord's Day that Paul had a glorious home in heaven to look forward to. There was before him the joyous reunion with all that he loved and those whom he loved. Peter tells us that there there is an inheritance which is imperishable and it is reserved in heaven for us. There is that reward that comes to Paul and to all who love Christ's appearing. There is that immortality that we will have that is incorruptible. There is the sinless perfection that he anticipated, no longer to struggle with sin and the weakness of the flesh. Above all of it, he wanted to know Christ and he wanted to be near Christ. He wanted the immediate presence of Christ. And Paul, in essence here, says my Lord and my Savior are the greatest treasure of my heart. I would rather be with him. He is my highest aspiration in life, to know him, to love him, to be with him. And Paul is letting his mind rush on these things, and then he comes back to the other side in verse 22, back to the other side of the equation. Note the first word, but. You can hear the vacillation in Paul's heart as he's thinking it through. But if I am to live on in the flesh, this will mean fruitful labor for me. That is not a discouraged statement on Paul's part. That is not a frustration on Paul's part. He's not looking at it like so many of us have looked at a, a, a day of, of stacking wood, right? Oh, man, labor. Paul is looking at this labor, and he loves his calling in Christ. This, too, is a desire in his heart. For to Paul, to live is Christ. And he says it'll be labor. It's going to be work. There will be more tents to sow. And there will be more trips undertaken. Paul will continue his tireless efforts to edify the church and to evangelize the lost. And there will be continual struggles and the sufferings that he's already endured. There will be spiritual sweat on his brow and there will undoubtedly be stripes on his back. He will continue to know the persecution that comes to all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus. There is a cross to be born and the sufferings of Christ to be filled up. So for Paul to continue on in the flesh would mean labor. But notice that he says it's not only labor, it will mean spiritual fruit. 
And that's what Paul is really after. He took no joy necessarily in the sufferings, but he knew the fruit that would, 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 would grow to the, to the glory of Christ. The church would be strengthened if he continued in the flesh. Sinners would be converted to Christ if he continued to preach the gospel. And he was willing to embrace the struggle because for him to live as Christ, Paul was not clinging to this life. He was clinging to Jesus. Everything to, to Paul was Jesus. And he knew full well that to labor in the Lord was to bear abundant fruit in the Lord. Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 15, 58, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Listen, it is never wasted work to labor for Christ. You've got to know that. You've got to anchor that. It's too difficult and too discouraging, and there's not enough fruit evidence most of the time to continue to pour yourself out on the Lord's behalf. If you're looking for results, you may not see what you want, but you can count on this. You can take it to the bank. When you labor for Christ, there will be fruit in Christ. You dig the hole, you remove the rocks, you plant the tree, you fertilize and you water, and given time, God always causes the growth. We must be individually committed to this and corporately committed to this. We are going to continue to pour ourselves out on Christ's behalf until that fruit be born by him to his glory in the end. Friends, we must labor by faith and not by sight. It is the most profitable work on the planet. It is guaranteed return and it is guaranteed reward. Jesus said this and hear this as if you haven't heard it before. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, that is to say the one who is a true believer in Christ, he bears much fruit. That's a fact. That's not hopeful, that's reality. Some 30, some 60, some 100 fold, but if you're in Christ, you will bear fruit. For apart from me, Christ says, you can do nothing. But by this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. What is it that proves that you're a disciple of Christ? The very bearing of the fruit of Christ in your life. And that is certainly seeing sinners converted to Christ, but don't truncate it just down to that. You will see the life of Christ evidenced in you, and therefore the good works that Christ has given you to walk in will be borne out in your life. Beloved, there are no fruitless saints. If Christ is in you, he will be born out of you, and Jesus is the rich vine, and every branch in him bears good fruit. It was the very thing you were saved for. Do you remember that? For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works that any man should boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. That's our pattern of life. 
is to be an imitator of Christ. And so here's Paul who is convinced of this very thing. And he is in essence saying, you know, uh, yeah, I have a desire to punch out and to retire. But if I labor a few more years, if I will pour myself out on Christ's behalf, my retirement will be all the richer and all those who benefit from my labor will, will benefit all the more. There will be still greater usefulness, still greater profit, still greater benefit, more fruit for Christ, more honor for Christ, more praise to Christ if I remain. So to live on in fruitful ministry or to pass on and be with the Lord, that is the question. Look at the end of verse 22. Paul says, I don't know which to choose but I am hard-pressed from both directions. Now listen, Paul is not saying he had a choice in the matter. Whether to live or die, he knows that the outcome of things rests in the providence of God. He knows that his future is in God's hands. He knows that the verdict ultimately is up to the Lord. There, there is no question about that. He's simply being transparent and he's expressing the very desire of his heart. He will if... He, he, he's saying, in essence, this is my preference. I don't know which to prefer. I don't know which one weighs more heavily upon me. I want to be with Christ badly. I want to live for Christ badly. This is Paul's dilemma. He loves his earthly ministry. He loves serving Christ and he wants to be with Christ. And if I live on, well, that'll mean fruitful, fruitful labor. And that to me is joy. And if I die and I go to heaven and the executioner should take my life, then I go to be with Jesus. And that is joy. And he says, I'm stuck. I'm torn between these two possibilities. Both are good. Both are profitable. He has two desires. He's being pressed. Note what it says. I'm being pressed from both directions. I am hard-pressed, he says. The verb is, is, is interesting. It, it means to close or to enclose. It, it, it has that idea of crowding. In fact, it's used that way in Luke 8.45, that the crowds were crowding and pressing in on Jesus. He uses it in 2 Corinthians 5.14. He says, the love of Christ constrains us. It it controls us. It, it is, if you will, that, that Paul says, I'm, I'm hemmed in on both sides. I don't know if you've been to Zion National Park, but my wife and I were there this last year, and there are canyons in there of this limestone that's been worn away by erosion over the years. And you can go back in there, and it's amazing. But these, these canyons get tight, sometimes all the way up to you, you can barely budge. You're constrained by them. That's why they warn you, don't go back in there when there's, there's a threat of flash flooding. There's no way out. That's the sense that Paul is, is thinking here. I'm stuck. Well, he comes to a resolution. And we really... I think, begin to see him turn in that direction at the end of verse 23. He says, I'm hard-pressed from both directions, having the desire to depart and to be with Christ, for that is very much better. It will be gain to me, Paul says, 
It's an advantage. It's a benefit to die. To be with Christ is, the, is, is my heart's inclination. That's what I'm passionate about. But that's not all of it. That's not my only passion. Christ is my passion, and because Christ is my passion, yes, I want to be with him, but because Christ is my passion, his people are my passion, and to remain on here means labor among the people of God that will benefit them. Paul says, you know, this is difficult. I'm wrestling. I'm struggling. Earth is good, but heaven is better. Earth means labor, fruitful labor, but heaven means the Lord. As long as I'm home in the body, I'm absent from the Lord. And Paul, I think, makes no bones about it. I, I think he's tipping the scale more on one side than the other. He says, I, I have this desire, literally this, this, this strong, passionate, driving desire, this epithumia. This was no passing whim for Paul. This wasn't the feeling that he had on Monday that gave way to something else on Tuesday. This this was something that was rooted deeply in him. This is what he wants. I have this desire, he says, to depart, which is an intriguing word. It, It means to loosen, and the word was used of ships back in the day being loosed from their moorings. You would undo the ropes and let the ship go out to sea or or unleash it from its anchor. It was also used, and maybe Paul has this in his mind as a tent maker, for for taking down your tent, rolling it up, and moving on. That's what Paul is saying. This is the deep longing of his heart. And like I said last week, I, I think that longing grows stronger and stronger the more of this life gets in the rearview mirror. I remember as a young person sitting right where you're sitting and thinking to myself, man, there's just way too many things I've got in front of me. Heaven can wait. As time goes on and you experience more things in this life and you see that everything, in fact, here is tarnished, everything here is is frail, everything here is decaying in some way, shape, or form, and, and your heart is inclined more and more toward Christ. You begin to think more and more about heaven. You delight in the Lord more and more. You know more of your Bible. You know him better. You just can't help. You're attracted like a magnet to steel. There's just this growing pull in your life upward toward heaven. And I I tell that to you older people because you just smile at me and go, yeah, I know, I get it. I tell it to you younger people because your tendency is going to be like mine to think, well, I don't really feel that way. I wonder if I'm really saved. I would say to you, just keep growing. And you'll find, you'll find your heart increasingly swelling with a desire to be with Jesus. The things of heaven will be more precious to you as you are sifted and sanded by the difficulties of this life. Here's Paul, in prison, marked by the scars of battle, near the end of his life, chained to a Roman guard, knowing the Lord more deeply than he did at 40, and his heart is overwhelmed with a passion to go home, to pack up his earthly tent and go be with Jesus. That's what he really wants. 
he says, in fact, it is very much better. Not just somewhat better, not an upgrade from life on this planet. No, this is a superlative statement. He's saying it's not just better, it's not even much better, it's very much better. Literally, it's much more better, which is really poor English, but, but, it, but that's what he's getting at. And I say to you again, beloved, do you doubt this? Do you look at heaven with a sense of hesitancy? I tell you, if you do, it's, it's from ignorance and it's from unbelief. It's a tendency to think that somehow God really isn't all that exciting and that life here as we know it is just, is just full, of, full of pleasures. Well, God has in his grace given us a great deal on this earth, has he not? Are there not incredible pleasures in this life? There are. But do you see that somehow that's unworthy of him to think that somehow he would give you a better life here and now in this sin-tainted Genesis 3 world than he is going to give you forever and ever and ever in his presence? That world will be, on your, be beyond your wildest imagination. I ask you, will the God who made the glorious splendors and rich pleasures of this life give you less in the next? Will the God who has stirred your heart to wonder at his creative genius leave you sort of bored and plucking a harp in the afterlife? This earth, it is said in Romans, is groaning under a weight of sin and bondage, waiting to be redeemed fully. If you think looking at the Sierras or the Swiss Alps or the glory of Lake Tahoe or the stars above you is something now, it will blow your mind what awaits you. Even the best of earth is tarnished. Even the best of earth is decaying. Don't forget that Paul got a glimpse, didn't he? Whether in person or in spirit, he did not know, but he, he got sucked up into paradise. He was able to see the third heaven. He got a glimpse of heaven, and he was told, you can't say a thing. That might have had something to do with why Paul was so eager to be there. Beloved, can I encourage you to let Paul's words here stir you to wonder Stir you to eagerness. Don't let your heart be filled with unbelief about these things. Take it for what the word says. Paul, writing by the Holy Spirit, says it is much more better. I'll take your word for it. What a day when our faith becomes sight. And Paul couldn't wait. But wait, he would. Look at verse 24. He comes back to the other side of the equation. Yet, to remain on in the flesh is more necessary for your sake. For your sake. Beloved, this is the priority of love in the Apostle Paul's life. You can see the things driving at him. His love for Christ and his desire to be with him. 
And on the other side was this compelling desire to live for Christ in this life that he might minister to Christ's people and see Christ's people know Christ as he knows Christ, to see them growing and progressing in the faith. You see, this really is at the heart of a Christian worldview. This driving desire to be with Christ and this driving desire to minister for Christ in this life, is that your life? Is that your heart? Love for the Lord and love for others. Love for Christ and love for his people. Love for the kingdom of heaven and yet love for the saints on earth. That's Paul. He's got this passionate, driving desire to be with Christ. That's his personal preference. That's what would be good for him. But he says, I'm not the only one involved here. This isn't ultimately about me. This is about the Lord's desire. This is about the Lord's timing. This is about, dear Philippians, you're so precious to me. This is about you and your well-being. How can I leave you? Fruitful labor among you or the presence of Christ in heaven? There are good things to be had in both. And when I think about you, brothers and sisters, I see the benefit that my remaining here is to you. In other words, Paul's very much better for me is subjugated to his much more necessary for you. I have no hesitation, Paul says, about what I want most, but but you will only receive benefit if I remain. I can be patient. I can wait. I can hold off a while longer. I I can pour myself out for your benefit. I want heaven, but for your sake, I want to continue here. See, brothers and sisters, this this really is the, the primary thrust, I think, of this morning's message, and that is this, that the Christian life is a life lived unto Christ, whether here or in heaven, whether alive or dying. The Christian life is a life that is postured. It's a disposition that prioritizes the Lord and others. We've been set free from self-love. We've been set free from pursuing our own comfort and our own desires and what we want most. That really isn't the issue. We, we are slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ and whatever would please him and whatever would benefit his people, we, we, just, we just live open to whatever the Lord would have for us, right? We're just aware that whether, whether here in the flesh or there in spirit, that's where I want to be, wherever he would have me. You see, your situation and mine may not be as life-threatening as the Apostle Paul's was, but it's every bit is real. Will I do what pleases me, or will I live in a way that I serve you and, and do for you what is most necessary? Will I live satisfying me or meeting the needs of others? Will it be me or my spouse? Will it be her interest or mine? Will it be my children 
or me? Will it be my pleasure or that class of kids? Will it be my Saturday or somebody else's Saturday? And you can spend your money on the things you want or the things that are necessary for the advancement of Christ's kingdom. We are so thankful for the way this church has been faithful in giving. We continue to, 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 <laughs> to praise you in that, to, to say, well done. You know what the average giving is? And I think this is sort of the American mentality. Yeah, I live for Christ. I serve Christ. And I realize that when it comes to my resources, they come from him and um, I realize that, that I should be giving to, to the Lord's work. You know what the average giving is? Just under 2%. What does that say? I don't know. I'm not going to give you a percentage. <laughs> what, what do the scriptures say? You, God loves a what? A cheerful giver, a hilarious giver, a, a giver who, who gives because he loves Christ, loves the people of God, wants to see the kingdom advanced, and just gives to that end freely. I think the American mindset is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm, I'm gonna to seek Christ and me. Paul here is all in. He's saying, I, I just want to serve the Lord. And this is another thing you will grow in because God will help you to grow in it. Young people, you will be stripped increasingly over your life as God brings people into your life by way of a spouse, by way of children, by way of, uh, of employment, by way of a growing friendship, by way of involvement in a church. Christ will increasingly teach you to, to, to care less and less about yourself and about your, your stuff and about everything that, that you used to chase over after when you were younger, he will teach you to be satisfied in him because wasn't it the Lord Jesus Christ who taught us what? It is better to give than to receive. It is better to be last than to be first. It is better to serve than to be served. Do you see that the Lord Jesus' kingdom is completely upside down over what this world and your flesh will teach you? Completely upside down. You can invest your time in personal pursuits. I used to do it. I still do it far too much. I praise God that he has increasingly over the years sanctified me still more and more. And I can look around at you and see that the same thing has happened. I remember the compulsion and the frustration I used to feel at having to give of time. Give it up. <laughs> give it up. Be free. You can do that in the Lord Jesus Christ. You can seek to meet the needs of others. You can put others before yourself. The blood of Jesus and the indwelling spirit enables you to do that. He has set you free from serving yourself. He died, why? So that they who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Brothers and sisters, it is better to wash feet than to have your feet washed. 
It is so easy to settle into just serving ourselves, our little world, our little family, our little, our little, our little, and not to think more broadly about the needs and responsibilities that we have to others, particularly to the church, to the people of God. And dying to self is a daily and relentless pursuit. And Paul had learned the lesson. Look at verse 25. Paul says, convinced of this. The word is patho. It's to be firmly persuaded. It is to be convinced by argument. In Paul's thinking as he evaluated things and the maturity and, and other-centeredness and wisdom of an apostle, he, he considered the situation and he thought about the need for him to stay and serve the church. And he, he goes on to say, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. There's a little play on words there in the Greek. Paul says, I will remain, and New American Standard translates it, and continue with you. In the Greek, it's, it's, it's meno and parameno. I will remain and I will continue to remain alongside of you. Which I find interesting. It's, it's as if he juxtaposes it. He's just been talking about being alongside Christ. That is very much better. But because I'm convinced of your need, I believe that I will continue on. I will remain and I will remain alongside of you. I'll be in your presence, not his presence, at least for the near future. And the question comes in, well, how did, how did Paul know this? Well, some think he received some sort of direct supernatural revelation from God telling him the outcome of his trial. And that's possible. But to me, it seems somewhat speculative, and it seems to argue against what I think is the flow of the passage. You would think if he received some sort of supernatural revelation, he, this wouldn't even be an issue. He wouldn't even be talking about it with the Philippians. I think he's talking about it and wrestling with it precisely because he didn't know what was going to happen in the end. Or he simply would have said, you know, I received by divine revelation, and he would have laid it out. The whole tone of this context really is one of uncertainty about the outcome. Oh, he knew that either way, there would certainly, he would magnify Christ. He says that in verse 20, right? He says, Christ will even now, as always, be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. See, I, th I think he's, he's questioning that. I think it's more likely that this is just a very, very strong personal conviction that Paul had that he was needed for the furtherance of the kingdom and for the furtherance of the Philippians. I think he looked at it and he says, I... My guess is, my strong sense, my, my prediction is that I will be remaining on, that I'm going to make it through this trial alive, and that I will come and be alongside of you again. And he thinks he will remain on because this will mean progress and joy in the faith. You look over at verse 12, you'll be reminded that he used this, this word, this progress word in verse 12. Now I want you to know, brethren, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. Here he's talking about the greater progress of the Philippian church. He wanted them to grow in the faith. He wanted them to, to progress 
in knowledge and in love and in holiness and in faithfulness. And there's something for us in this. Do you see that, that, that the Christian faith is a growing faith? Do you see that Paul's heart for these people is, is that they would be maturing in the faith? It is a growing faith. It is, it's not a, a stagnant pond. It, it is this, this great river that is flowing somewhere, your Christian life, and there is tributaries feeding and feeding, and the, the river is becoming wider, and the river is becoming deeper as we head toward that goal. It's moving. There is this swelling tide as we grow in the knowledge of God. And as we mentioned last week, growth in the knowledge of God is to grow in life, eternal life, Jesus says in John 17. And to grow in the knowledge of God, to grow in your Christian experience in life is to grow in joy. That's what Paul wants for these people. He wants their joy to bubble over. He wants their satisfaction and their delight in Christ to grow and to swell to new heights. And all of this is contingent upon their growing in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ and their knowledge of Scripture. And how were they going to get that growth? Paul says, I think I'm instrumental to all of this. And on my release, I can come and I can instruct you in the truth and I can continue alongside of you and I can set an example of godliness before you and you can imitate me as I imitate Christ. I've got to tell you, I am so thankful eternally thankful, presently thankful for all the people that the Lord has brought into my life so that I might grow in the knowledge of the truth, so that I might see in them Christ, that I might behold Christ. And all of you, to some degree or another, who are in Christ are part of the very thing I'm thankful for. I, I don't ever look out across your faces and somehow think, well, these folks thought this might be a nice church to go to. The, the, the environment is nice. The trees are beautiful. The building is... Uh-uh. I look across. I see the faces of those who've just formally joined the church in membership, and I think Christ has brought those people here for me, for us, and us for them. And I think of the, the pastors who have shepherded my soul. I think of my parents. I think of the professors who instilled their time and, and effort. Most of them pastors themselves, but so that they might prepare the next generation. I think about friends that the Lord has given to me who invest in me. And I'm just grateful I will be eternally grateful. Each one of them a gift from God. And at the risk of, of, of sounding somewhat self-serving, trust me, as well as I know my own heart, that is not my aim to be self-serving in this. It's for you that I say this. The Apostle Paul calls us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 12 and 13 to appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord. Why? Well, they give you instruction and you should esteem them, he says, 
very highly because of their work. In Hebrews, we read these words, remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering their conduct, imitate their faith. Do you see, that's what Paul is saying to these Philippians. God has gifted me to come and to bear the truth out before you and to live before you as I imitate Christ, that you might imitate me so that you might grow up unto him who is the head, so that you might have knowledge, which is eternal life, and that you might ultimately have have a cup of joy that just bursts over the top. You remember Paul told Timothy, he says, you need to remember who it was who taught you the truth. From childhood, you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation. And who taught Timothy, young Timothy, those truths? It was his grandmother Lois and his mother Eunice. You ladies at home, you realize the impact of your lives. Forget the diapers and the laundry and the whatever else piles up. Those children who are under your teaching, under your training, who are observing you day to day, going through life, living out your faith, hoping in Christ. What a call. What an amazing call. You fathers who shepherd those wives and those families, do you feel the weight of that responsibility on your shoulders? Bring the word of God to your children. Teach them the truth that they might know him and that their joy might be full in life. Give it up, whatever it is that's getting in the way of that. Give it up. Give yourself to the others that God has put within your sphere of influence, those that God has put within your domain. Live to Christ and love others. Give yourself fully to that. Expect nothing in return. Rejoice in the privilege of just expending and being expended on behalf of other people. You see, you will look back, I'm sure you can, in your life and see that the Lord has brought you up in the truth by giving you certain people in your life who taught you the truth, who exemplified it, who showed you how to live it in Christ. And the end result of all of that should be great gratitude to God. We don't glory in men. We don't glory in any man. That doesn't mean that we neglect to be grateful for them or to express our gratitude to them even, to honor them in that respect, to express our love for those people who've taught us. But we glory in Christ. We boast in Christ. We understand that Every human person who's come along and given us the truth has come along because God has sent him or her. And that's just what the Apostle Paul tells the Philippians. Look, verse 26. So that your proud confidence, I'm going to continue with you in the progress and joy in the faith so that your proud confidence in me may abound to Christ Jesus through my coming to you again. Now, New American Standard didn't get this right. They, they, they would have been closer if they had just left the original word order. Listen, here, here it is literally in Greek. So that the boasting of you may abound to 
Christ Jesus in me through my coming to you again. They weren't boasting in Paul. Paul doesn't want them honoring him. Paul wants thanksgiving for him to be offered up to God because Jesus alone is worthy. He's simply saying, your overflow, your boast, your confidence may abound in Christ when I'm released and I'm able to come and minister to you again. Won't that be a day when we can be together? I can be alongside you and you along me, and we can, we can wonder at, 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 the, at the Bible, at the scriptures, at the truth, and in all of that, it's all a gift from Christ's hand. King James says that your rejoicing may be more abundant in Christ Jesus. And the word really is boast. It's not rejoicing, but that's the sense of it. The English Standard Version says it this way, that you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's the idea. That's the idea. They would glory in the Lord because of Paul's release. They'd been praying for that, remember? And they could worship Christ and give thanks to Christ because of Paul's release. All glory to Christ. I want to give you in just a couple of minutes, I think, three simple principles that can be gleaned from Paul's example here. Three attitudes, really, that mark Christian maturity. Three attitudes that come through this text. The first one is this. Our lives should be marked by a Christ-like humility and service. Our lives should be marked by a Christ-like humility and service. What was it that Paul did? He yielded his desires, his greatest passion to be with Christ, what he wanted most, the pleasures of heaven, he yield those that he might serve the Philippian church, that he might serve God's people. He had what I've titled this message, but for your sake attitude. We should live with a but for your sake attitude. Where, where is it exactly that Paul got that but for your sake attitude? Has your mind drifted at all in the midst of this message to Philippians 2? And you start thinking about what is this that, that Paul would, would be so concerned about other people even though he would rather go to heaven? Well, who was it who set aside the glories of heaven for a time that he might, for our sake, endure the indignities of life on earth even to the point of giving his life on the cross for our sins? Do you see that Paul is just living in the footsteps of his Savior? Heaven was Paul's greatest pleasure, and yet what was more needful for those around him was that he remain, and Paul was willing to do that. And Paul understood that Christ had chosen to suffer for him rather than to bask and to rest in the, in the glories of heaven. And Titus 2.14 says that Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We belong to Christ, and why do we belong to, to Christ? That we might be zealous for good deeds. That's, that's why we're redeemed. That's one of the reasons, that we might be like Jesus, that we might imitate him. 
We are his. We've been bought with a price. And we expend ourselves for others just as Christ did for us. Now, that, that's the broad, broader point, that we would have Christ-like humility and sacrifice. But let's narrow that down. What you'll see is that we also, like Paul, ought to be characterized by a sincere love for our fellow believers, a sincere love for the church. And I will confess to you, I did not have this growing up. Church was a place I attended. And there has been growing in my heart as my knowledge of the word has grown and as as I've grown in understanding what Christ has done, not just for me, but for us. I've I've told you a hundred times, but when I started studying Greek and saw that all those yous I took to refer to me were, they were all y'alls. They were all corporate. I began to see that Christ came to redeem a people of which each of us are, are a part. We are, as Charles said earlier, living stones being built into this temple. And that should, should do something within us. It ought to move us as we think about how to invest our life, how to invest our time, what we're doing with our days. Paul subordinated his personal passion for heaven, for a life of service to Christ and to the church. How much Paul loved the Philippians. And beloved, we should love Christ's people like that. We should be subordinating our desires regularly for the good of one another. We should regularly be devoted to one another in brotherly love. We should regard one another as more important than ourselves. We should give preference to one another in honor. We should seek not our own pleasures, but that which is good for one another. We should serve one another, and we could go on, couldn't we? Beloved, all those one another's argue for this, and Paul's attitude here argues for this, that we should place a super high priority on the church. Do you place a really high priority on the church, on God's people? on the people sitting to your left and your right and the people in front and in back of you. It's the only place you can really live out those one another's consistently for the most part is right here in our midst. And do you prize one another? Do you treasure this gathering of his people? You see, we should place a high priority on the church because Christ does. When I began to understand that Jesus shed his blood for a people, a people for his own possession. Well, all of a sudden, if Christ is willing to die for these people, then we ought to be willing to die for one another. Christ intercedes for his church, therefore we pray for one another. Christ serves his bride, therefore we serve one another. Jesus, it says in Romans 15 2, did not please himself, but instead denied himself, and so we deny ourselves that we might edify and please one another. Christ forgave us freely, and so we should forgive one another freely. See the priority of the church. And number three, we must learn to live earnestly for Christ while we wait eagerly for him. Paul was a contented man. He was not wringing his hands and pulling his hair out in the midst of this tension. What was it that caused the tension in his heart? (laughs) 
love for Christ and love for his brother and sister in Christ. Love for Christ and love for the church. And so the thought of the Lord motivated his living and it brightened his dying. And there should be in the heart of every believer two things, an obvious zeal about our serving the Lord in this life and a ready and growing enthusiasm for being with him in the next. They, they, they come together. We are those who what delight in the blessed hope, that we love his appearing. We're eagerly awaiting a savior from heaven. We, we with Paul could say to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord and that is very much better. For us to live on in this life is to serve Christ and to die well. That is to be with the Lord and that is very much better. For us, that is gain. Let's pray as the music team comes forward. Lord, we thank you for the things that you accomplished in the Apostle Paul. We thank you for his life and his sacrifice. Lord, another one of those men of whom the world is not worthy. We're grateful for his bonds. We're grateful for the things that you accomplished through his imprisonment. Lord, the things you taught him. We thank you for his heart's desire for you. And Lord, we confess that in our own small way, that same tension exists in our heart. And we pray that you would only intensify that tension for us that we would long for heaven with a greater longing and that we would labor zealously in this life with an ever greater zeal, an ever brighter zeal for you and for your glory and for the spread of the gospel and the edification of the church. Teach us these things and in all times, in all ways, Lord, we will give you praise for you are worthy. Amen. Be a day. But we should always give thanks to God for you, beloved brethren, by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. It was for this that he called you through our gospel that you may gain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brethren, stand firm and hold to the traditions you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now may our Lord... Jesus Christ himself and God our Father who has loved us and given us eternal comfort and good hope by grace, comfort and strengthen your hearts in every good work and word. The Lord bless you.